Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Orberg. Today, as we are recording the show, it is Halloween. It is not Halloween for you now listening to this in the future, but it's Halloween today. And I'm very excited about that. And I also uh, got to achieve the dream of a lifetime recently when I got to see the movie Geostorm, which is a movie I have been excited about seeing ever since I saw the first trailer back in February. It is a movie about a geostorm. And it is a movie that says the word Geostorm exactly as many times as you hope that it would. Frequently, a character will say, but that would mean some sort of Geostorm. Every time that happened, I was filled with delight and approval. Uh, And at the end of the movie, there is a big countdown clock on all the computers that says, time to Geostorm. And uh, here are some spoilers for Geostorm. So if you haven't yet seen it and you don't want it spoiled, please stop listening for the next 10 to 15 seconds. Uh, They do manage to stop the Geostorm with about five seconds left on the clock. And it's so beautiful because as soon as they do the thing they need to do, it is as if nature has like a a head foreman and he's like, all right, pack it up, everybody. Like turn the floodwaters back, lightning go away, clouds roll apart. Like it, it just like clockwork weather just stops. And it was a perfect film and I want to see it every day for the rest of my life. And I think all of you should too. With that, I want to introduce our guest for today, Sarah Gailey, who is an internationally published author of fiction and nonfiction, as well as a regular columnist for Tor.com and Barnes & Noble. Sarah, hello. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. And I am so relieved that we are not going to have to endure the geostorm. Has anyone told you about the good news of the film Geostorm? Um, have you accepted it into your heart? I, I have accepted it into my heart. I repent my previous non-understanding of Geostorm, and I am prepared to do the good hard work of telling everyone I know that same good news. It is uh, brought to you by, I believe, the assistant director uh, for 2012 and The Day After Tomorrow. Thank God. Which are two other excellent, very silly movies about, you know, horrible weather patterns. um, And this is just continuing in the same wonderful vein. And I love it. It's a genre I love. I loved it very much. It was one of those movies where um, everybody would narrate what they were doing. So they would say, you know, oh, we have to go retrieve this databank from that panel. And then someone would say, I'm heading over to the panel now. There it is in the panel. I am taking it now. Uh, And I just really appreciate when a movie spells things out for me, especially when it involves any sort of being in space or science. And I'm like, yes, thank you for this handholding. I sure do appreciate it, Gerard Butler. You might otherwise have been confused about how to handle a geostorm in your own life. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. This is just like an after-school special for you. It it was everything that I wanted out of an afternoon. It was profoundly meaningful. There are about six other people in the theater, and we all had a very, very good time. I'm deeply happy. Andy Garcia plays the president. Of course he does. And he gets to, at one point, say, because I'm the goddamn president. (laughs) And, you know, Andy Garcia is really good at saying stuff like that. So, yeah, I just think everybody who wants, if this sounds like the kind of thing that you think you would enjoy, you should go see it. If you think you would not enjoy it, don't see it. See something else. See something. And also what's wrong with you. No, no. I'm not here to suggest that my taste in movies is a universal good. Uh, I learned that lesson long ago. 
you know, like when you reach the age where you realize, oh, trying to force people to like scary movies if they don't like scary movies doesn't make me fun and open up people to new worlds. It just makes me irritating and bothersome to someone who knows what they do and don't like. Of course. I I would never suggest that my own taste in films was impeccable, but Mm -hmm. I will evangelize your taste in film to your listeners for you so that you don't have to do it. Thank you. Mine is pretty much just, is it in 3D? If it's in 3D, I'll probably see it multiple times and be very, very happy. Because it's like it's coming right at you. That's, that's all I want out of a movie. The Geostorm is right here. I, there was a 3D showing of it, but I did not get to see it because the, the 3D showing wasn't until like 1030. That was the shortest tragic story I've ever heard. Thank you. Um, Sarah, I'm so glad to have you here. I'm so glad to have you here today. Uh, and I'm really excited because I finally have a podcast episode that is not just all the questions I've gotten in the last week that felt too heavy to answer in the column or the live chat. I realized I'd been kind of saving all the stuff where I thought, oh, this is going to take more than a paragraph to address for the podcast. So we just had week after week of just the heaviest stuff. I, I was getting to a point where like, I was weeping on the air, just realizing this is, this is a lot. So uh, I'm very excited because today, obviously, these are all real problems facing real people. Um, I, I don't mean to suggest that they are unimportant, um, but it's it's not quite the same like brutal, relentless <laughs> yeah. sense of helplessness that has characterized some recent episodes. So I'm really excited to just offer rulings on like how communal laundry should be handled <laughs> and uh, how to negotiate salary. I'm glad to turn this corner with you. I really am too. Thank you. All right. So the first lesson. Letter. The subject line is, just want to get my clothes dry. And it's about the sort of eternal question of how do you handle having a couple of dryers in a big apartment complex? Dear Prudence, I live in an apartment complex and share a small number of washers and dryers with my neighbors. I believe that it is acceptable to remove a neighbor's clothes from the dryer when you need it, as long as the clothes are already dry, of course, and after a reasonable amount of time has elapsed. My question is, is it more polite to fold the laundry I remove or simply to touch it as little as possible? I can see an argument for folding, but I might do it wrong. And frankly, I would feel weird if I knew my neighbors were handling my things more than was strictly necessary. Have you ever lived in an apartment complex with shared washers and dryers? Oh boy, have I. How did that go for you? (laughs) Was there a policy? There was no policy. Um, oh, but, so just a free-for-all? That's oh, People yeah. can't handle that kind of power. No, and the washer and dryer were at the top of four flights of stairs, which is criminal, and the entire building should be arrested. Even just the people who live there? No, no, just the building itself. Fair enough. Big handcuffs. Um, and I encountered this same dilemma from the opposite side of the problem while living in that building, where there was a washer breakdown situation, and my clothes had to stay in the washer because they already had all, like, detergent and stuff on them. Right. And my landlord got the washer fixed and then decided to finish doing my laundry for me and folded it. How did that feel? little weird when I saw that he had folded all my underwear into tiny rectangles. Yeah, I feel weird just listening to that <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I definitely feel for you, letter writer. I feel like it is very much incumbent upon the landlord or the superintendent to, like, throw up a whiteboard in the laundry room and that just says, you know, like, put a little sign next to it that's like you have, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to grab your laundry out of the dryer. Uh, and, you know, uh, you can, I, like, at the last time that I lived in an apartment complex, there was a little whiteboard uh, and you would write down your apartment number. 
as well as which washer or dryer you were using so that if for some reason you got distracted and somebody needed it, they could come up and knock on your door and let you know. That's genius. It was a great system because generally I would try to move my stuff through pretty quickly, but every once in a while, I, I don't know, get, get a phone call or an email, get pulled away, and somebody would just be like, hey, your stuff's ready. And that was very helpful. And then there was a table underneath it where you could throw somebody's stuff if they weren't uh, around when you knocked. See, that's brilliant. I think the laundry rules and a clear understanding of them, that's what separates us from the animals. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, That is actually the theme of the book, The Island of Dr. Moreau. I've heard that. It is about laundry. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so I would say, like, big picture, uh, get in touch with your landlord or super and ask them to put up a sign with, Mm -hmm. like, some sort of policy everyone can agree on that's reasonable. But in the meantime, don't, no, you don't have to fold your neighbor's laundry. That is, it's not even above and beyond. It's too much. Yeah, I would would strongly advise against folding any stranger's clothing, whether you live with them in the building or not. Yeah. No, I think your instinct that I'd feel weird if someone did it to me is a good one. Uh, And if it's been, you know, longer than 15 minutes, go for it. Yeah. Pull their stuff out. Don't dump it on the floor. Hopefully there's some sort of surface you can put things on. Um, And yeah, go ahead and and do it. And then in in your turn, uh, make sure that you are around when your stuff is done in the dryer. Mm -hmm. Good policy. Man, I'm very glad I no longer live in an apartment with a shared washer dryer. I just I just moved from my house into an apartment that has a washer and dryer in the unit. <gasps> That's the dream. I know. Oh my God. I'm so happy. Oh, you have truly ascended. <laughs> All right. Well, given that you are now just like above the rest of us, would you please read this next uh, this next letter? I'd love to. When to object. Dear Prudence, my younger sister recently announced she is engaged to her boyfriend of roughly three years. They are both 24 and met in college. Although I consider them a little young to get married, this is not my issue. I don't like her fiancé, although I've never expressed this openly. He is financially irresponsible, has so many traffic violations that he's facing jail time, and often excludes her socially. He doesn't invite her out with friends. He doesn't invite her to his family home for holidays. I recently found out that after graduating college, my parents paid their rent for nine months to help them get on their feet. And my sister's boyfriend has never acknowledged this or thanked them. I find him emotionally immature, and I believe he takes advantage of my sister's generosity. Neither of them have stable employment. I am seven years older than my sister, so we haven't always been close. I moved after graduating high school, and since, we've lived in different states. For the first time in many years, we lived near each other. She moved across the country for her fiancé's job and admits she is deeply unhappy with the sacrifice. I invite her to my family events, make regular trips to visit her for dinner, and try to talk to her generally about what she wants out of her relationship and her future. But I worry it's not my place to tell her directly I do not approve of her boyfriend. I was recently married myself and don't want her to think I'm sabotaging her possibility of happiness. I also want her to know I support her no matter what she decides so that she can be open with me without judgment. I do worry if I don't say anything, I will live to regret it. How should I proceed? How should they proceed, Sarah? Um, my big picture opinion is talk to her. Um, letter writer, I totally understand this conundrum that you're in. You don't want to alienate your sister. You don't want her to feel... Uh, that she doesn't have your support if she decides to marry this person. But also as someone who has been in a situation of a relationship that people close to me didn't think I was being treated well and they didn't tell me, if she ends up leaving that relationship and finds out that you saw the bad things going on and didn't say anything, she'll probably be a little confused. Um, I think that it'll make you feel better and her feel better if you sit her down and Ask her how she feels in their relationship. I also think that if the sister has already admitted that she's deeply unhappy with the move, there's more 
runway there for an emotional conversation than you might think. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to sign off on like 60% of that. I, I, I think there is plenty that you can address with your sister here. And there's some stuff that I think is not as important. So, you know, um, certainly it's not fantastic that he, at least to your knowledge, uh, has thanked your parents for helping the two of them out financially. Um, you know, he doesn't sound like somebody I would love to be best friends with. But nothing you describe sounds like a red flag in terms of it would be incumbent upon you to seriously warn your sister off of this guy. Um, so I, I think the stuff about I just don't like him, you know, you don't have to marry him. You don't have to be financially stable to get married. Um, it doesn't sound like that's going to be an easy aspect of their marriage, certainly. But I think, um, you know, he has a lot of traffic tickets. He's financially responsible. You can certainly talk to her about how the two of them handle their money situation. And if she seems open to suggestions on how to save or whatever better, that's great. But um, I, I don't think that reaches the level of I don't think you should marry him because he gets a lot of traffic tickets. Yeah. The thing that stuck out to me in this was uh, I find him emotionally immature and I believe he takes advantage of my sister's generosity. That sounds to me like the big red flag that I would want right. to talk to someone about. And again, you know, sitting down with someone and saying, hey, I hate your fiance. Don't marry him. Probably not a great approach. Right. But, you, you know, she's already shared with you that she's unhappy. And you say that you haven't historically been tremendously close, but it does sound like the two of you have gotten to know one another better over the last year or two. Mm -hmm. And so I think you absolutely do. Uh, I think the way to phrase it is not, I don't like this guy and I think you shouldn't marry him. Um, but to say, hey, how are you doing? You know, you mentioned that you're really unhappy with the move. How are you feeling? Do you mm -hmm. do you feel connected? Do you feel like you guys have a good strategy for building a life together? What's going on with you? Yeah, I think that the way to get close to someone is to do stuff like that. You know, if you want to be closer with a sibling who you have a significant age gap with, talking to them like an adult and an equal is a really great way to start building that relationship. Right. And I, I think it's really good, letter writer, that you say your main goals are to make sure that your sister knows that you support her no matter what she does and that uh, she can come to you with stuff without you judging her. And mm -hmm. that will serve you really well. Like if you had said, my main goal is to make sure she doesn't marry him, I think you'd be heading for a little bit of trouble. Because it is also possible that you guys will have this conversation. Uh, she will share some things with you that you wish would, you know, induce her to leave him. And she decides to marry him. Uh, and one of the unpleasant things about life and adulthood is that sometimes people we love make decisions that we don't want them to make. And sometimes they make kind of objective mistakes. And so I think if you go into this with the mindset that we may or may not have the kind of conversation I hope to have, she may or may not decide to reconsider her engagement in light of some of this information. Mostly what I want to do is, is know what's going on with her, uh, offer her support, uh, and if at any point she needs something, be there to provide it. Mm -hmm. And so if that's your goal, I think you're going to be able to have a pretty productive conversation. Um, and if she does end up marrying him and it doesn't work out, you can be there for her in that. And exactly. it also may be that they get married and have some financial troubles and they have to navigate their interpersonal dynamics and she has to stand up for herself a little bit more and he has to grow up a little bit. Uh, and that'll be between them because, you know, that will be their marriage. So I, I think your instincts here are, are pretty solid in that you're not trying to make sure she doesn't do something, but so much as ask questions, uh, make sure she knows that if she has doubts or isn't getting something she needs, that that's okay for her to advocate for and that you support her no matter what.
and he, you know, he doesn't sound great. I hope she doesn't marry him too. But if she does, you know, yep. he's he sounds like a not amazing, but it doesn't sound like he's a monster or he's hurting her, and and that's good because then you just kind of know, okay, it's not it's not so much that her safety is threatened; she just is maybe in a relationship that's not great for her and will make different choices in the future. Yeah, and it sounds like there's room for growth and time for growth. Yeah, and you can be supportive of that too. Yeah, and I think you're right that you say I, I don't think it's my place to tell her directly that I don't approve of him, and and that's true, especially because they've been together for three years, and so presumably you've been thinking this about him for a while. So uh, I think it is better to start bringing stuff up before the wedding, um, and again to try to not make sure that you are just like offering up subtle digs. Like be really clear mm-hmm. about what you want to know more about. Well, something that I like in. Uh, your perspective on this letter writer is that you say your goal is not to offer approval or disapproval, but to offer support, which I think is an important dynamic that shows respect for your sister. Right, right. And I think she'll probably be receptive to that, especially it sounds like the two of you have really gotten to know one another better now that you live close to one another. Um, and so I think there's there's a real opportunity for a good connection here, even if she ultimately decides to marry someone you think is not a great choice. All right. Subject line of the next letter is keeping the peace. We've got a lot of sister stuff today. Yeah, I'm which is kind it. of great. Uh, so, oh boy, yeah. Oh man, I, I definitely have some some helpful suggestions that I think we can <laughs> offer to this letter writer. Who boy, this is a good one. Uh, dear Prudence, I have a wonderful sister. Spoiler alert: This letter writer does not have a wonderful sister. Uh, this is the kind of thing that usually opens letters of like, I have a wonderful husband or girlfriend or wife or boyfriend, and they never do. They never do. Um, it's a good open, though. Yeah, sorry, sorry to immediately editorialize. Let's get back. <laughs> Dear Prudence, I have a wonderful sister who I truly get along with and enjoy spending time with. When both of us lived at home, I got to hear all about her drama with her friends and loved it. It was low stakes for me because we didn't have the same friend group. If she told me she hated someone, I was immediately on her side and hated them along with her. This was never a problem until she came to my college. I hated high school, while my sister was homecoming princess. In college, I finally found my people and developed a much larger friend group. I think of myself as someone who's easy to get along with, and I made no enemies in my three years there before my sister's arrival. Within her first semester at school, my sister had gone through several different friend groups and made enemies in each of them. While this wouldn't have affected or bothered me in the past, now it's involving some of the people who have been my friends for the past few years. When this first started happening, I did what I always do. I supported my sister and cut out the people she told me were horrible. But as this snowballed, that list grew longer and began to include people that I had counted as really close friends. Now that I've graduated, because the school is so small, this is still continuing to happen, and I'm starting to get tired of it. I still love my sister, and I want to support her. But is there a way I can do that without cutting out every person that she thinks has wronged her? To be clear... Some of these slights are mostly dramatized by her. I don't want to lose all of my friends. Oh, boy. Oh, are they? Are some of these slights slightly dramatized? Just a little? Just maybe a little tiny bit? You're, you're, you're just now starting to think <laughs> that the fact that, like, every new day your sister adds somebody to her enemies list, like Nixon, uh, that maybe the problem is not that the world is secretly full of monsters, but that your sister is difficult to get along with? Well, but she's wonderful. Boy, howdy. She is not wonderful. She is not even a little bit wonderful. Yeah, um, this is a this is a wild letter. Yeah, letter writer, 
I feel for you because I think some of the trickiest letters are the ones where the person writing in has become dimly aware, oh, I think this might be a problem, but it's been a problem for a long time. This is not a new issue that only matters because it's affecting people you know. Your sister is a shitsterer. And it sounds like a jerk. Drama tornado. Yeah, yeah, that's a great expression. Um, it is not. Uh, uh, it is not likely that your sister has been profoundly wronged by most of the people she's met her entire life. I think the kind of common denominator in all of these situations is your sister, and so uh, the fact that historically she has repeatedly come to you and said, this person is now awful. I need you to cut them out of your life. Uh, That this has happened over and over again for, gosh, at least five to seven years. Um, That's not good. Well, this is the question that I had when reading is, if the sister is demanding that the letter writer cuts her many, many, many foes out of their life, then that's a problem with the sister. But I also wonder if that oh, you said this person is bad, now I'm going to hate them forever, is maybe a dynamic that could be altered. Yeah, well, the letter writer says, I I loved it, right? So the letter writer has been getting something out of this dynamic too, whether that's some sort of uh, like living vicariously through their sister uh, or or they just really enjoy being told what to do. I, I don't know what your motives have been, but it sounds like as long as you could think of all the people that your sister had, you know, issues with uh, as sort of faceless villains, you got something out of it. You had a really good time. There's something in you that enjoys turning other people into villains, cutting them out of your life forever, declaring them on your eternal enemies list, and feeling some sort of solidarity with your sister. It's us against a cruel and unjust world. Yeah, that's petty bonding. That's being petty with someone else and talking about drama and the awful people and we're going to hate them together is, you know, I mean, that's pretty... Uh, not standard bonding behavior, but it's a common. Right. It's certainly maladaptive. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's and, perhaps not the healthiest. Yeah. And letter writer, you don't say anything else that you and your sister have in common. You don't say that you guys share mutual interests or that there's like a hobby or a sport or a game that you enjoy or that you talk about your schoolwork or your career goals or people you like. It kind of sounds like the only thing you and your sister bond over are her enemies. And that's pretty unhealthy, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that this is affecting people you know. um, It's that you are only starting to realize that this is actually a really unhealthy, inappropriate thing that your sister has been doing for a really long time. And you have been condoning it, supporting it, enabling it uh, for a long time. And, you know, for what it's worth, that's not to say uh, that it's always bad to you know, cut somebody out of your life uh, or to be on the side of somebody you love. Like if somebody objectively commits like a really, really unacceptable action of, of, you know, assault or boundary pushing or or cruelty, totally understandable that you'd want to support your sister. But this is clearly not that situation. You yourself say some of these slights have been blown way out of proportion. My guess is that's almost always been the case. My guess is there is something going on with your sister you know, I, I I don't know what it is, but there's something about her that needs to cast people as villains who need to be expunged. Um, and that's not a good way to go through life. So uh, you can't necessarily fix that in her, but you can certainly do some work about how you respond to that.
Mm-hmm. You say that setting. you don't want to lose all your friends, but it sounds like you already have. You say that this list has been growing longer and longer for at least a year or two. You've you've graduated college. She was there for at least one year that you were. And in a single semester, she had cycled through multiple social groups. So one of the things you may need to look at is, do you owe any of these people an apology? I don't know what, for you, cutting people out looks like. Have you, you know, cut someone socially? But which I mean, like the Regency era cut, right? Right, like yeah, cut at the garden party, the cut direct. Right, right. Um, have you, you know, turned your back on a friend uh, who did not, in fact, do anything wrong? Have you spread gossip about people? Have you said cruel or hurtful things to them? Have you ignored their attempts to get in touch? And if so... Uh, do you need to apologize for that? Not necessarily because you're going to get that friendship back, because frankly, they may have no interest in, in being friends with you again. But, you know, look at your own behavior as clearly as you can and ask, is there somebody that I have hurt for no reason other than the fact that my sister said they're a bad person? Ignore them forever. Yeah, that's and, That's got to be number one. And then I would say it's hard when you've been kind of engaged in that like petty gossipy drama culture to extract yourself because it feels like the only way to interact with people. But it's completely okay when your sister comes to you and starts saying, oh, this person is terrible and they wronged me to say, you know what? I'm sorry that you're having conflict, but I need to not be a part of it. And I got to tell you, letter writer, I think if you do that, and I think that you should do that, the next person to go on your sister's enemy list is going to be you. And I think that that will be I think that that will surprise you a lot. I think you will feel like you two, it's been the two of you against the world and she would never turn on you the way she turns on everyone else in her life. I think if you even very gently and blandly said, you know, good luck resolving this conflict, but I don't want to get involved, you will be surprised by how quickly your sister turns on you. And what you thought of as a deep and profound sibling connection, in fact, rested almost exclusively on your ability to act as her attack dog. And that's going to hurt. And you're going to want to walk it back, I think. You're going to want to regain that closeness. You're not going to want to be on her enemy list. So for you, letter writer, I recommend therapy. I recommend therapy right now. Um, And go in with the stated goal of, I have this dynamic with my sister. It's been going on for years. I realize now uh, that I have been facilitating bad behavior on her part, and I don't want to do it anymore. I want to stop engaging in this behavior kindly uh, I, I don't want to, you know, immediately go to her and say, you're a monster, you're a jerk, change your life. But I want to set boundaries. And I've never done that with my sister before. And I'm pretty sure she's not going to like it. How can I start doing something I've never done before? And a good therapist who kind of specializes in family dynamics and setting and enforcing boundaries is going to help you a lot in that. It will make your life so much better. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you say you love your sister and that you want to support her. It is not supporting her to co-signing her view of the world where everyone is just waiting to stick a knife in her back. That is not supportive. You are not helping her grow into a healthy, well-adjusted adult. You are enabling something, uh, you know, that is distressing, that leaves behind, you know, emotional and social damage, um, and that is not good. And that in the end is going to leave her alone. Yeah. Oh, this is not... You know, this is not a recipe for like a robustly healthy self-image and rich social support network uh, throughout the rest of adulthood. No, this is not good for her. It's not good for you. It's not good for the people around her. Um, 
and you are right to want to change. And so I, I feel like I've been a little bit hard on this letter writer because I do think you are only dimly aware of something that you should, in fact, be quite aware of. But we all have to start somewhere. And I think it's really good that you're starting to see your sister's behavior for what it is. So, you know, for you, the next things are look at your own behavior and figure out who you need to apologize to. Um, if your sister comes to you and says this person is a monster because they went to Target without me or, or whatever, you know, over-dramatized slight, uh, you know, you get to and need to say, I'm really sorry that you guys are having trouble. Um, I really care about them. I really value their friendship. I don't believe they've done anything that would necessitate my no longer being friends with them. Um, I encourage you to find a better solution to this. And then, you know, therapy to prepare you for I imagine a big emotion. I mean, she's going to give you like a Game of Thrones worthy speech of, I knew yours would be the final and ultimate betrayal, <laughs> my own sibling. And that's that's going to hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully you can find a way forward, even though she feels that way, because it seems like a lot of the work you have done previously has been making sure that, you know, all other things aside, your sister was happy with you. And that should no longer be your goal. Your goal should not be to keep your sister pacified. Your goal should be to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, when you start setting firm and stable, healthy boundaries with people, they eventually tend to respond by learning healthy boundaries themselves. But yeah, you know, I I don't want for you, letter writer, a half-hearted attempt to not join in. And then she responds so angrily that you think, this is unacceptable. I can't lose this relationship. Uh, I I didn't mean it. I'm just kidding. Sorry, sorry, sorry. You're right. They are a monster. Uh, And then going back in. But now with an increased awareness of how this behavior affects other people and an increased sense of guilt in your own participation, Mm -hmm. I think that would be a really bad outcome. And I don't want that for you. And that would enforce her awareness of how to manipulate you, letter writer, using this dynamic. Because here's the deal. If she can't interact with anybody without eventually experiencing some sort of horrible betrayal, um, eventually she will find a reason to think of you as someone who has betrayed her. I don't think there is an outcome where you play along so well that your sister never turns this on you. I think it's going to happen sooner or later. And it's better for it to happen now. And it's better for you to come by it honestly. Because otherwise, it's going to be five years from now, you don't do enough for her birthday. Mm -hmm. Or you forget to ask her about something that she just decided was the only thing in the world that mattered. And there will be no gentleness or compassion or mercy in her response to you. It will just be your turn to reap the whirlwind. You're on the list now. (sighs) Please write back. Um, I I am in incredibly interested to find out more about what it looks like to try to set a boundary with your sister and to see um, what, if anything, some of your former friends say if you if you attempt to kind of reconnect. And I really do wish you the best, letter writer. I think, you know, it's, it's hard when someone you love, you sort of see their behavior in a new light and you think, oh, I think they've been acting badly. It's really hard to acknowledge. Nobody likes to acknowledge that someone they love has acted badly. But they have. Good luck. You can do it. All right, so we we got some more more friendship stuff on deck. This next letter is, uh, I think it's your turn to read. I think so. Uh, Subject line is, how do I get them to include me? Dear Prudence, lately I have felt really let down by one of my best friends, Diana. I see her every week, but she neglects to invite me out. I recently had a falling out with our mutual friend, Myra, who was pushing me. When I asked her to respect my boundaries, she reacted badly, and we've just never spoken since, though I tried to be nice and send a happy birthday or congratulations on milestones. Other friends have said that I should apologize, which I found unfair. 
Myra and Diana still talk even though Myra left for grad school, and I'm okay with that. But I do feel really bad when Diana goes out with Myra or with others and I'm always left out. I also feel bad thinking about this when I reflect on the fact that my friends never made an effort to celebrate my birthday, even 21, though I have said I feel bad about this and everyone else's birthday was always an occasion. I guess my question is, what should I do? I'm not the most emotionally expressive person, but I have expressed my feelings to Diana and other friends. And when I did express feelings to Myra, she disregarded them and called me stupid for wanting to be respected, so I don't feel that I can just talk to them about it. I don't want to lose another friend, and I don't want to lose respect for myself, but I do want to feel like more than just their shoulder to cry on. I've always been known as a good woman in a storm. I've been there for friends, and it feels like they're never there for me. So what do I do short of finding new friends, which I don't think I can really do? Man, you know, this letter and the last one both just give me so many college flashbacks. Yeah. Um, this is such a common thing, I think, in your like late teens and early 20s. This, uh, you know, obviously everyone's life looks really different, but often... Um, you know, if you go to college uh, around this age, this is kind of like when your peer group is sort of at its like peak, you know, companionship levels, right? Like you're often living really near one another. Often it's everyone's first experience living outside of their parents' home. Um, generally speaking, most people are not like married and partnered and, and and having children of their own. And it's just like, this is the stuff of my life, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say that things like this can't come up later in life. I get a lot of letters to that effect. But man, just this age of... A lot of acting out, a lot of figuring out boundaries, uh, a lot of sense of my friends are my world, um, a lot of free time in between classes. Um, I mean, depending. Some people work and, and don't have time for all of this. But yeah. not that these kids don't work. I just mean it feels very of a time. Um, and I really feel for that because yeah. sometimes you see letters like this and the sort of response is like, you're just kids. These friendships probably will not be lifelong. Uh, you won't even know many of these people in 10 years, so don't worry about it too much. But, like, it really, man, like, I remember that age when you're, like, 21, and it feels like, oh, somebody else got a bigger birthday celebration than me, and I feel like no one cares about me. Yeah. And this is agony. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's, well, and I feel like there's a little, like, replacing family dynamic with friendship dynamic, and people bring all of their family dynamic stuff into their their new family, their found family that they're trying to build. Yeah, so what's your sort of first impression of this letter? Do you feel like there's there's room for negotiation here? What's your what's your best advice to this letter writer? Um gosh, my first and best advice for this one is um and this is hard and this is something that everyone I think needs to work on in their lives, trying not to define yourself by your perceived treatment by your friend group which can be really difficult, especially when they're your whole life. Um, But things like other people getting big birthday celebrations, I've found that, you know, that can be something that triggers a lot of people's feelings about being undervalued. But you're at a point right now where you can set up your birthday celebrations however you want them to be. You can have a huge birthday celebration. You can invite all your friends. And you don't need to count on them to set that up for you or surprise you with it in order to demonstrate your worth. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a big one. I think, especially if you are a bit more on the sensitive and reserved side, sometimes there can be a sense of, um, I spend a lot of time anticipating other people's needs and paying very careful attention to indirect signals. And that's what friendship is. So I do a lot of that. And I say I don't do it for the purpose of reciprocation. But then when other people don't do it back to me, I feel Mm -hmm. like they don't care about me. 
And sometimes that can be true. Sometimes you can genuinely be in a group of friends who don't value you, and that's worth investigating and, and, and looking for. Do I want to, you know, pursue different friendships? But sometimes it can also just mean you did not ask for what you wanted. You did not clearly communicate what it is that you want from your friends. Um, and because they do not uh, read people, have the same response to the world, uh, they don't anticipate other people's needs the same way you do, does not mean that they do not love you. It means that you need to speak up more. So it seems like there's a little bit of that at play. And then it also seems possible that this is a friend group that has kind of clearly communicated what they expect from you. Um, so I, I don't think it's all one or the other, right? Because there's mm-hmm. I, I don't know exactly what happens between you and Myra. I don't know what boundaries she pushed. I don't know how you expressed yourself to her. It's a little unclear. But your friends have made it clear that they think you should apologize. And so, you know, again, depending on what happened between the two of you, Either there's an opportunity to do something there or your friends are trying to suggest that you should not respect your own boundaries for the sake of like group cohesion. And I Mm -hmm. think that that is often a sign that your friends do not value your well-being as much as they value everybody getting along. Yeah. Quote unquote getting along. And I think that that's a tricky thing in, you know, we've all been there in this situation where you feel like you've communicated something important to someone, they've reacted badly, and you're like, okay, well, they're unreasonable and terrible, and I'm not going to apologize for this. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth reviewing two things, the first being whether the friendship with Myra is one that's worth saving, one that you want to save, and if you do, if the answer to that is yes, then reviewing that interaction and why it is that all of your friends think you should apologize. If they all think that you should apologize because there's drama and they don't like it, and they know that she's not going to back down, but maybe you will. That's a bad reason. That's a terrible reason. But if they're all like, hey, uh, you know, you said something hurtful, or she misunderstood what you were saying and reacted to that, and you didn't give her room to understand you, or there was a, a poor interpersonal communication, then you do have an opportunity to do something which I find never hurts, which is going to someone and saying, I'm sorry for my part in this. Let's talk about it and try and fix things. Yeah. I think reading this over again in this particular instance, I want to take the letter writer at face value. Uh, I I think that is useful, but I'm just going to go with, you know, absent more information. I'm going to assume that you reasonably and politely said, please respect my boundaries. And her response was bad. Uh, In which case, you know, Myra has demonstrated she cannot be a good friend to you. She doesn't care about your feelings. Um, She's not interested in apologizing for hurtful behavior. And that's not a person you should have in your life. Like, that's a very clear sign of I don't value or respect you. So uh, I think, you know, the the thing of I'm trying to be nice and send periodic, you know, congratulations to her. uh, I understand that. I, too, whenever I feel like someone has withheld their approval from me, just want to figure out how do I make you like me again, even if I don't think you're a very good person. Um, But I think that that is worth letting go of. I think she has demonstrated to you that she doesn't care about your feelings. um, And you should not try to reconnect with her. Um, I, I think that is a friendship that is worth letting die on the vine. Now, the other part of this is Diana. Right. Um, actually, that's the, the main part of the opening is that uh, the letter writer was let down right. by Diana. Um, there are two things that stand out to me in this. Um, one of them is I see her every week, but she neglects to invite me out. I feel like this is really dependent on the friendship dynamic and the where your friendship is in its development. Right. Um, because for me, seeing a friend once a week is like, oh, that person must be my blood sister and we are forever bonded for life because we see each other so often. But in some friend dynamics, especially a college age, 
seeing someone just once a week can feel really small. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, it does sound to me like Diana is making an effort to, you know, do the once a week get together and and be a good friend in that way. And so I wonder what would be satisfying in that friendship. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm rereading the sort of last chunk of the of the last paragraph. Um, I have expressed my feelings to Diana and other friends. Uh, when I expressed my feelings to Myra, she called me stupid for wanting to be respected. That feels kind of clear cut to me. Like, again, I don't know exactly what you guys were talking about, but that's a pretty lousy thing to do to a friend. So, you know, if you tried to, from a, in a spirit of vulnerability and, and care, say to Myra, this hurts me, and she said, that's stupid, you're stupid, Myra's a jerk. Yeah. And if you have told your other friends, Myra really hurt me, this is really hard for me, and the response has largely been, you need to get over it, and also when we go out with Myra, we're not going to invite you, they are communicating pretty clearly um, their their choice, which has been, um, we don't think that what Myra did really matters, and it's kind of your job to get over it. That doesn't mean you have to completely give up all of your friends. I know you say that the idea of finding new friends feels so daunting you don't think that you can do it. Um, and I want to acknowledge that that's a real fear and and that, of course, that feels overwhelming and daunting, um, especially when you've known them for a long time. But I also think that it is a sign that this is a group of friends who are probably not going to take your feelings very seriously. Mm-hmm. And so if you do try to say things like, I really want to feel valued on my birthday this year, it would really mean a lot to me if everybody came out to dinner, um, or I really want to see you this week, can we can we spend time together? Um, they're maybe not going to respond the way that a good friend should. Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't mean you have to you know, cut them all out of your life. Um, but I think maybe now is a good time to look at some of the other connections you have that are maybe not as deep, but with other people who seem kinder and who do respect boundaries and maybe saying to one or a few of them, hey, do you want to get coffee this week? And investing a little bit more in those friendships. Now, that doesn't mean that within a month you're going to have a brand new social circle of really perfect people. Um, but I think it will go a long way towards helping you realize, oh, I can move towards people who do respect my boundaries and who do care about my feelings. And I don't have to keep chasing the people who have kind of made it clear they can only care about me a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think trying to get more out of Diana and that group of friends is probably going to be like trying to get blood from a stone. Yeah. I think they've made it clear how much they're willing to give you. And it's not sufficient. It's mm-hmm. making you sad. It's making you feel ignored. It's making you feel undervalued. Um, and so that doesn't mean you can't ever see them again. But but I do think that you deserve better from your core group of friends. Um, and so if it feels too much to, like, cut them out completely and just try to start fresh, I don't think you have to. But I do think that instead of trying to get Diana to invite you out or to try to get these people to stop bugging you to apologize to Myra, which I, I just don't think you should do, frankly, um, I, I think you should investigate your other connections, even if it's just somebody that you have a class with who you sometimes chat with and you want to chat with them a little bit more the next time you have class. Like you can take small steps and build up different friendships in different directions. I think you deserve that. Mm -hmm. And having a a more diversified support network, I think will make the dynamics of this one friend group feel less fraught, less like it's everything and it's so important that I get it right. Um, And instead you'll have the opportunity to say, okay, what's good for me? What do I need out of this? And how can I be the best person that I can in this dynamic? Yep. And you know what? I'm going to plug therapy one more time, especially because uh, that last sentence, I've been there for friends and it feels like they are never there for me. 
That's a big statement. And that either means that uh, you have had really thoughtless, uncaring friends, or you have failed to communicate your needs, or a combination of the two. And there's something you can do about that. And I don't mean, I don't say that as in, it's all your fault, you're a bad person. You know, this this letter writer is in such a different category from like the sister from the previous letter. Like, I don't mean to say you're doing friendship wrong and it's all your fault that you're not getting what you need from friends. What I mean is, I think that there are patterns that you could investigate in therapy um, that you could change and that would result in finding out sooner whether or not you are friends with someone who is trustworthy, who cares about you, who wants you to feel good. Um, And so I think that that is a dynamic that you can identify, name, kind of figure out some of the roots and and try to change. And I think therapy would be really helpful, especially if you, you know, look for a therapist who kind of specializes in, um, you know, found family, friendship dynamics. And if you say, look, here's my pattern. Um, I give a lot to my friends. I don't give a lot, get a lot in return. Um, I will think I am communicating very clearly what I need. Other people don't seem to pick up on that. I don't know if it's a combination of I'm not being as clear as I think I am, or I seek out people who don't respect boundaries. I want to learn more about this, and I want it to look different. I don't want to keep running into this pattern again and again. And I think therapy will really help with that. And if nothing else, it will be an hour a week. Um, where you can talk with someone confidentially and their sole focus is on helping you. Yeah, I will 100% co-sign every single plug for therapy. Which neatly leads us into the next letter, which is actually kind of about a therapist who is maybe not so great. Um, Because I also want to point out that not all therapists are great. Um, Not all therapists are going to be right for you, and not all therapists are good at their jobs. Yeah, Um, this is a... Speaking of segues. Yeah. So, yeah, I I also just want to make it clear, like, therapy is not a perfect solution to everyone's problems and that uh, it is, in fact, uh, you know, it's sometimes the case that you have a bad therapist and you got to you got to get rid of them. The subject of this one is absentee patient. Dear Prudence, I was seeing a therapist for several years. She was helpful to me in many ways, but there were some things that make me uncomfortable. She was also seeing my father as a client. And it also seemed like she never wanted to discuss anything related to my queerness. While she had asked my permission to take him on as a client, and I said yes, it was sometimes hard not to think of her as a surrogate for my dad when I had sessions with her. I got busy, and I'd been thinking a lot about gender identity, which I wasn't particularly eager to discuss with her, so I simply never scheduled a next appointment. A couple of months went by, and I felt guilty about it and had planned on emailing her to check in. However, my dad recently told me that she had asked him if I was okay because she hadn't seen me in a while. This made me super uncomfortable and makes me wonder if she'd breached my confidentiality before. It led to me having a discussion with my father about my mental health that I did not want to have. My question is, do I owe her closure or should I contact her because maybe I'm the one who needs closure? She was helpful during some dark times, provided me with structure to discuss my feelings. We got along extremely well, and I instinctively want to end things neatly, but I feel really hurt that she betrayed my confidence. If she really had been concerned about my well-being, she could have contacted me in a number of ways. At this point, I feel both guilty and angry whenever I think about this and want to figure out how to feel better about this before I start things up with a new therapist. Who boy. Oh, golly. Yikes. She whiz. Buh. I just, mm-mm. Yeah, Wow. Yeah, a thousand times no. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, yikes. This therapist. Capital Y-I-K-E-S, yikes. I I am kind of surprised. I mean, 
it's one thing if someone is a specifically focused on like marriage and family therapist who sees members of a family together and or separately and it's kind of understood that you're there totally it's something to work together versus just being an individual counselor and then after working with someone for what sounds like at least some period of time saying hey is it cool if i take on your father too like i'm going to uh, spoil the answer to that one no it is not cool yeah it is Super not cool. I mean, maybe they live in a very small town where there's only one therapist. It's but like three people and one of them is a therapist and the other one is her dad. Yeah. Mm, yeah. No. Yeah. That's not rad. I'm, oh, gosh. So, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think both of us are super on board with um, it was totally inappropriate of your therapist to tell your father that you had not been attending sessions and to ask if you were, quote unquote, okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say as a good rule of thumb therapist your therapist should not be discussing you with their with other patients any with anyone with anyone well i mean other like than you. colleagues in a in a professional setting keeping sure. you anonymous fine yeah but um yikes yeah yikes is the the best response yeah so no you are super super right to be hurt and to feel betrayed and upset so i'm so glad that you're already clear i need a new therapist uh there were some things that this person was helpful with, but, you know, between the fact that I didn't feel comfortable sharing with them something that's pretty strongly rooted to identity in your experience, um, the fact that she seems to want to avoid talking about queerness um, and what she did, uh, what she said to your father. Yeah, you're done seeing a therapist. Yeah. And I'm I'm going to say um, unless someone owes their therapist money for services rendered, you you don't owe a therapist anything. I know it can sometimes feel like because you develop this relationship and you're saying things that you wouldn't say to other people right. that you owe them something emotionally. But a healthy relationship with your therapist is you're being rendered a, a mental health service. Right. And you do not ever owe a therapist an excuse for why you're not coming to see them right. anymore. It's like, not like you canceled a show they were watching and they're like, but I want closure. <laughs> no, you two have a specific professional relationship and it is incumbent upon the therapist to maintain appropriate boundaries, yes. which you absolutely correctly identify. If your therapist wanted to shoot you an email after a couple of weeks and say, hey, if you'd like to schedule another session, I'm available. And if not, be well. Uh, that would have been super appropriate. What she did was not. So the question before us, right, is um, do I contact her? Either to say, thank you, but I am done having sessions, be well, uh, or to say, I do not want to have another session and I do not like that you spoke to my father about me. You violated my confidentiality um, and it led to a conversation I did not want to have. And I can kind of see reasons for and against, because number one is you already feel like you can't trust this woman to keep your confidentiality. So there's the fear of if I tell her this, what if she tells my dad? What if she goes mm -hmm. to my dad and says, hey, your kid just emailed me. Let's talk. So you already know you kind of can't trust her. What's your take on that? I mean, I can really see both sides. Um, on the one hand, well, I, I think it does sound like the letter writer wants closure. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's perfectly reasonable to send either the email saying, oh, no, I'm not going to be seeing you anymore, period. Mm -hmm. Don't owe anything else. I will be discontinuing sessions is fine. Right. Um, and I think it's also well within the letter writer's rights to say, hey, I will not be seeing you anymore. And I think it was inappropriate for you to discuss me with my father. Um, I think one thing to consider in the latter is that 
I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this therapist seems kind of unprofessional and like they may have some poor boundaries. You open yourself up to a response that is trying the therapist trying to defend themselves, um, which can be difficult, you know, especially if you're already feeling emotionally responsible for this person and their emotional state. If you get a response back that's saying something like, oh, but I did it because I care about you. Why aren't you coming anymore? Yada, yada. That can lead to a whole emotional mess for you. Uh, For what it's worth, something that was originally in the letter um, was a belief on the letter writer's part that it was a violation of HIPAA. Yes. And I'm not a therapist. I don't I don't know HIPAA strongly enough to to make an official ruling. But um, based on like a cursory scroll through, here are some examples of common HIPAA violations. That's very possibly true. And so one thing that you may want to consider, letter writer, is filing a complaint with Mm -hmm. the relevant, you know, uh, governing board of I I, I don't know what whether your therapist is like where they're licensed or, or what the governing board is. But I would strongly consider filing a complaint. Because they should not be doing this. They mm-hmm. should get in trouble for doing this. They should get a stern talking to um, and possibly some additional consequences because they may be doing this to other patients. And frankly, what they did to you alone is bad enough. I mean, just just saying to you, is it okay with you if I bring your dad on as a patient and then discussing you with your father by itself is such a – it's so it's so bad. It's such bad being a therapist yeah. that – that's I, not how therapy works. Yeah. And I like I feel like I can 98% guarantee that that therapist is doing this kind of thing to other clients. You're you are not the lone special case of this therapist being unprofessional. And there should be consequences. And frankly, for that. even if you were, it's bad enough on its mm-hmm. own. Absolutely. Uh, I think that um you may or may not want to share in your email with your therapist this bothers me if only because you fear that she will not be discreet. In that. Um, So I would say, you know, sit on that, think about that, sleep on it, say, is it more important to me that I communicate? You know, I I won't be attending any more sessions. And I also need you to know, um, I was deeply troubled that you did this. uh, And I wish you had not. Um, And think about, you know, what's the worst possible outcome of that? Is that acceptable to me? What's the best possible outcome? What would I want from this interaction? Um, And if there's a part of you that just feels like, I don't think I can send that email without being panicked and paranoid that my therapist will take that to my father too, then I think it is totally okay to just send an email that says, just wanted to let you know I'm not scheduling any more sessions. I've really enjoyed our time together. You actually don't even have to say that because, frankly, this may make you retroactively not enjoy your time together, and that's okay too. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Really think about filing that complaint. Yeah. And I got to say, if this were me, it it would take me a couple of days to get there, but I would file a complaint. Absolutely. And it would be a very justified complaint. Yeah. Um, And then when you find a new therapist, you can find one who, A, is not currently treating any of your family members. Right. And B, who specializes in uh, queerness and gender identity. Yes. Find a, you know, like LGBT competent therapist. And I know sometimes uh, someone can just sort of put that on their website as like, I'm LGBT competent. And sometimes that means that they are, you know, like well-trained and have a lot of experience in working with uh, gay and lesbian and bi and trans communities. And sometimes it means, you know, they read a book and they mean well. And sometimes, you know, often that can be really heavily weighted towards issues of sexuality and less so when it comes to terms of gender identity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
give yourself permission to do some research and and to find out what their background looks like, um, you know, what what their clientele looks like. I mean, obviously not they're going to say what clients they work with, but <laughs> if they, they do, can, don't go see them. Right. Yeah. Check, you know, read reviews if, if they're available to you, um, you know, ask around. Um, if you have like a phone call with one of them and you say one of the things that I really want to discuss is gender identity, um, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, what your approach there is? Um, and if it feels like they're like, oh, uh, that's a thing, isn't it? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to talk about it. Then that, that's probably not the therapist for you. Yeah. Um, and to also share, you know, my last therapist shared some of my information with my father. So I feel anxious and a little paranoid. And and make sure that you say that up front so that you don't find yourself in a position of, uh, feeling like, okay, I'm taking you out for a test drive and I'm really not sure. Like, uh, let them know that that's, some, that's where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. And I, I, a good rule of thumb that I follow when looking for a therapist is that in our first phone call or consultation, they should explicitly tell me, here are my confidentiality rules, and they should have, like, cast iron confidentiality stuff that they want to make sure that I know about. If your therapist doesn't do that, then it might not be the first thing on their mind. And then you may run into the situation again. God, I hope not. I really hope not because I'm just so sorry. I mean, part of the reason that therapy is helpful is because people understand um, there is a very clear set of guidelines for how this relationship is to be conducted. And it should not blur into other relationships or triangulating my relationships with my family members. This is between the two of us. I can trust this person to keep the incredibly intimate and vulnerable things I share with them when we meet um, professional and keep that shit to themselves. Yeah, It just makes my heart hurt that the letter writer had to have a conversation about mental health with their father. Yeah. That they weren't ready to have. That's so unacceptable that their therapist would put them in that situation. Yeah, that was really messed up. And I hope you file that complaint. Yes. Um, and, and just good luck. I hope you find somebody um, who's just better. I just hope you find a better therapist because you deserve one. A super great one. I'm glad you got some good stuff out of this person. Um, but boy, howdy, mm-hmm. was that, what a way to go out, you know? Yeah, That's yeah. one of those things that just kind of retroactively taint, it like paints the whole thing in a really different light. Yeah, I I want to encourage you, letter writer, to not um, feel like you have to discard the good work that you did and the good things you got out of this. Right. Uh, sometimes you need a different therapist for a different stage in your life. And boy, right now, do you need a different therapist? Yeah. And you deserve it. And good luck. Figuring out gender identity stuff is really hard. And um, I'm just really happy to hear that you're kind of letting yourself start to explore that. That's just beautiful and wonderful and vocational and profound and meaningful. And I wish you all the best in that journey. All right. Last one is about negotiation and numbers and math. Oh, my gosh. I'm very jazzed. I believe it is your turn to read. All right. Subject line. What's a midpoint? Dear Prudence, I'm interviewing for a position, and I'm confident I'll be invited to the final round. The posted range was wide. Let's say something like $45,000 to $77,000. I was looking for something around $67,000. Today, the hiring manager emailed me saying they wanted to follow up with some info about salary. Then they went to point me to the posted range, saying that the salary will fall close to the midpoint of that range, in this example, around $61,000. On the one hand, I appreciate this information, and if they weren't going to invite me to the last round, why would they have written to share this? But at the same time, it comes across as a preemptive negotiating tactic from them, almost like a bait-and-switch. Is $67,000 the number I want close to the midpoint? How should I respond, if at all, without sounding presumptuous? 
What's your read on this? So I, full disclosure, worked in HR for a long time. Oh, my God. I should have saved so many more HR <laughs> questions for you. <laughs> Shoot. I You told me that, in fact, in one of our emails. And I was like, I'm going to save a bunch of HR emails for this. And I did not. And I love telling people HR secrets. <gasps> it's like one of my favorite things to do. Okay. After we address this letter, please give us like your top five secrets. Oh, I absolutely For the love. outro. Okay. Continue. Sorry. Okay. So... Um, my take on this, first of all, from a negotiating perspective, is that you don't have to say anything in response to anything about salary until you get into the interview and preferably you get a job offer. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. Um, the hiring manager may well just be trying to uh, set appropriate expectations so that they don't waste your time so that you don't walk in there and say, OK, I'm here and I want a million dollars and. I'm not going to do anything for less than that. Well, which, frankly, what are you doing interviewing for a job where the ceiling is 77000 Yeah. If you needed a million dollars. Well, you know, that would be kind of a, a stumbling block. Right. Um, but, yeah, you don't, you don't need to respond to that salary information at all. You can pretend that you just didn't see it. If you have to respond because there's other context in the email you oh, need to respond to. Oh, just say thanks for letting me know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, th- I think it's fine to respond just to let them know you're not ignoring them, but just say... Thanks for letting me know. Looking mm-hmm. forward to talking more. Yeah. That's it. I'll look forward to discussing this in person, in my in-person interview, where you will offer me the job for a million dollars. Yeah. And, it, you know, it is a preemptive negotiating tactic, which is not to say that it is necessarily suspect. It may very well be they've recently had, like, a budget review, and that's the amount they're really hoping to go for. It is within the range that they posted. And mm-hmm. obviously, they weren't going to offer you between forty-five and 77000 Like, at some <laughs> point, they were going to try to land on a number. Um, but, yeah, a- absolutely. You're right there. Um I wouldn't worry too much that, you know, the midpoint of the range is about 6000 below what you were thinking. It's certainly not as if you were thinking 77000 I think 67000 is not so far off that, you know, let's say you get, you know, focus first on deciding whether or not this is a job that you actually want, if you think you would enjoy working there, um, and, and they think that you would be a good candidate, you know, when you get to the point where you guys are talking numbers Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You can still ask for 67000 Of course oh, yeah. you can. Frankly, ask for a little bit more so that when you two try to meet in the middle, you get closer to the number that you really want. Um, yeah. you are, it, it is not forbidden for you to say a higher number. Like, yeah. y- these numbers are still on the table. They're not saying we're not going to offer. Like, I think sometimes the fear is if I say a number that's on a higher end, they may not offer me the job as a result. And I really don't, again, unless you're coming in, you know, hot and saying, I need $250,000 or I'm walking, motherfuckers. Um, <laughs> Which is a great way to interview, by the way. It is not. <laughs> um, the worst you will hear from that is, we can't do that. Yeah. Not, oh, you know what, now that you say that, you seem really high maintenance and we don't want you working here. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that the midpoint isn't a number. Right. It's somewhere near the midpoint. That can That's probably a $10,000 range. And even if midpoint is... That $61,000, it's your prerogative as an interview candidate to negotiate for a higher salary. They're not offering you the highest number that they can possibly pay you. Right. That would be stupid for them to do. Yeah. And and I think the other thing is, if you are the candidate that they really want, if you're even at the top of the pack, it would be so worth their time uh, to invest an additional three or four or five or six thousand dollars in you. I mean, that's not going to be the thing. Like, if mm-hmm. they really want you and your number is 67,000, they're not going to be like, oh, that would have been great, but that's five thousand a year more than we were willing to do. 
like hiring is so expensive. Finding mm-hmm. the right employee who's going to stick around for a while and grow in their position and be a valuable asset to the company, that's an investment that they're making. And if they really want you and $67,000 is, you know, your floor uh, or even just the number you want the most, you've got a lot to work with. You mm-hmm. are not being overly demanding. You're not going to make them turn on you. Um, if they really want you and that's something that you advocate for strongly, um, you know, if they're a reasonable company, if they are people worth working for, and it still falls within the original posted budget, I think there's a really good chance that you're going to be able to ask for it. I think that when we're when we're talking about salaries in a six-figure range, we get daunted by increases in the number because it seems so huge. But a company of the size that they have a dedicated HR manager, I would wager spends $5,000 a year on legal size paper. Right. Like you're not asking for something that's going to tear the company apart. You're negotiating and you're not just allowed to do that. You're expected to do that. Yeah. And it, 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 you know, especially if you have only had a handful of jobs, you have probably only negotiated a salary maybe two or three times, whereas a hiring manager negotiates salaries pretty regularly. So I think sometimes there's a sense of this person really knows what they're doing. And I'm kind of guessing. And that can feel really difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, I have only negotiated a handful of times in my life. And every time I have, I have called between five and 20 people and said, what do I do? <laughs> I don't know what numbers are. I, like, I don't have a strong sense of what, uh, you know, the usual salary is for this kind of thing. Oh, yeah. This is not a job I've ever had before. Uh, the range seems really big. What should I be thinking about? What what should I be bearing in mind? Um, what's what's the worst possible outcome? What am I not thinking of? So don't feel too hard on yourself that you're feeling a little bit lost because that's part of how this thing works. Yeah, you're absolutely allowed to feel daunted. And I can tell you that the worst possible outcome for asking for salary within or even a little bit above the stated range is that they say, no. We give you the number that we said we would give you. Right. They are not going to say, get out. We hate you now. I can't believe you did that. And if they do, don't work for that company. Yeah, that's a sign that that is not a good company to work at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, good luck. Definitely. Okay, you, I want to hear back from. I want to know, do they make you an offer? And if so, did you ask for 67,000? I think you should ask for more. I think you should ask for 68 or 69. Hilarious number. Nice. Um, Nice. Thank you. just so you have a little wiggle room um, and let us know what you get. Yay, you can do it. Okay, so HR secrets. Yes. The HR does not want you to know. Yes. Or maybe they do want us to know and we just don't listen. What what are some of the big ones? Okay. um, When you're applying for jobs, please, when you're writing your cover letter that the HR manager will read, make sure that you name the correct company in the cover letter. That is the first, uh, like, culling of candidates is who was applying here but said, like, Genentech in their cover letter. Yeah. That's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Your fancy formatted resume, unless you're applying to be, like, a fancy format person, like a graphic designer or UX designer, I hate reading. Sure. Every HR manager I have ever talked to is like, why? Why? the red font on the black background why did we do that why did we make that choice i'm not going to read that that's goth as hell i really respect that choice but i've never hired i've never been a hiring manager i've hired one person one time i two people i've hired two people i'll go with the goth as hell thing if they include like clip art of flames on their resume but if they don't not interested 
All right. So, you know, do your best to double check for clerical errors and mm-hmm. don't go bananas in the font department. Mm-hmm. Um, the phone interview is just to make sure that you can talk like a human to another human. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get the phone interview, mm-hmm. consider revising how you talk to other humans. And negotiation is so expected and uh, broad strokes. 95% of the interviewing that I've done and the hiring that I've done, the dudes are the ones who negotiate and get the salary that they want. And everyone else could negotiate and get the salary that they want, but don't because they're scared. And you should negotiate. Because there's question. more money. I have a question. Why is this such a universal experience? And I'm not saying, like, when a job opens up, everybody who sends in an application should get a response. I don't. But I mean, like, so often, someone goes in for the interview. They go in for a second interview. They go in for a third interview. Such that, like, they are reasonably led to believe they could be in the running for a job. And then they just never hear, again, from a hiring manager. Why do people do this? Why why to someone who's, like, in the top five, is it like, oh, we'll let you know. We will never let you know. We are going to burn you in effigy as soon as you leave the building, and you will never hear from us again. Why is, why is hiring ghosting a thing? Um... As a as a good hiring manager who's going do to go to hiring manager heaven, yeah, I have responded to all my candidates. Um, you are good and pure. But other terrible hiring managers who are not me, um, one, get down to the candidates who they want and immediately start have to processing a mountain of paperwork, and so everything else just like Bleh. two, the candidate did something so inappropriate that the hiring manager can't really contact them. Um, but how often is that happening? How often are you getting to that level of somebody who's a candidate and they do something so unspeakable you can never call them or send like, an email saying, we picked someone else. Good luck. Like a tenth. A tenth. All right. Yeah. So that's 90% of the people who are being wronged. Yes. Yes. They're waiting by the phone and I feel for them. And the third reason is because hiring managers, um, we are, we like to get together in groups and laugh about the people who we've wronged. Um, I knew usually it. over like red wine. I knew it. We wear a lot of black velvet. Um, get our nails done all long and pointy, and then just cackle. And there's nothing to cackle about if you don't ghost a perfectly good candidate. <sighs> Thank you for confirming something I have suspected my entire professional life. You're welcome. I'm glad that I could confirm that for you. Oh, 100% true. What a what a Halloween-appropriate image to close the episode <laughs> on. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. This was fantastic. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. If you're looking for more great podcasts from Slate, check out Amicus, a show about the law and the nine Supreme Court justices who get to interpret it for the rest of America. Get it wherever you get your podcasts.